Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 18th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The British Prime Minister says it is impossible to rule out a no-deal Brexit. In a letter to the leader of the Labour Party, Theresa May wrote, it is not within the government's power to guarantee no deal, as this can only be done by securing Parliament's approval. Jeremy Corbyn has said he will not participate in cross-party talks to overcome the impasse until he receives a guarantee that the UK will not leave if a deal has not been agreed. The other way the UK could guarantee it won't leave the EU without an agreed deal is to call the whole thing off and remain in Europe. The PM says, however, that she is not prepared to overturn the result of the referendum held two and a half years ago. Let's talk about this with an independent member of the European Parliament, Marion Harkin. Good morning and thanks for joining us. As things stand, would you agree that there are just these two options, Mrs May deal, including a backstop, or the UK remains? Well, good morning, Michael, to you and to your listeners. Uh, no, I don't agree that they are the only two options. Um, I think the vote in the House of Commons last week, whereby Mrs May had to come back next Monday, within three days of the, the vote on last Monday, uh, with uh, a plan B, as it were, if her plan was shut down. I think that clearly showed that the House of Commons would not support a no-deal Brexit. I can understand why Mrs May is saying um, to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, look, I can't guarantee this, um, because I suppose at the end of the day, none of us can guarantee anything. Mm. But I think it is very clear, and I've said to you many times that no British Prime Minister will jump off the cliff of a no-deal Brexit. I think what we can see now very clearly, Michael, is that the House of Commons won't jump off that cliff. But we all know that sometimes history happens by accident and that the the unintended happens. So I suppose nobody can guarantee it. But given that Labour will not support a no-deal or will not stand over a no-deal, we know that there are many people in Mrs May's uh, party, in the Conservatives, that will not countenance no deal. So I think that tells us 
that the numbers mm. are there at least in so the House of Commons. What are the other options then, do you think? I think the other options, while well, she's talking uh, in inverted commas mm. at the moment, uh, consulting and... I think but the EU won't countenance any deal that doesn't include an Irish backstop, will it? That's right. So, uh, so that's one option, uh, and that's the only deal possible, uh, or they could remain. Uh, so what other options are there other than leaving? Well, Barney has said this week that any deal with the UK will have to have a credible backstop at its heart. So they're sticking with that. But remember, Michael, what the backstop is. The backstop is that there's no hard border in Ireland or no hardening of the border, should I say. There's a difference between those two things. Uh, And uh, that that only comes into play if the trade deal that we finally agree doesn't give us that in the first place. So the backstop is an insurance policy. And if you look at Labour's proposals... Uh, for um, the the negotiations, uh, they are looking at. They won't say the customs union; they'll say a customs mm. union. Now, the EU will be quite flexible on language. I know that, but equally, you know this um, whole effort of having your cake and eating it as well. Mm. I mean, that hasn't gone away either. But has but she got the numbers? Uh, she is in office this morning because of uh, the support of the DUP, because of the confidence and supply agreement she has with uh, the Democratic Unionist Party and indeed how they voted confidence in her and uh, the government on Wednesday night. Uh, had they not, she'd have lost the vote by one. Yes, she would. Uh, but uh, it's up to Mrs May to come back with another proposal that is negotiable with the EU, uh, and that could be something like what they call the Norway a Norway Plus option, mm. uh, but that is broadly acceptable, or at least acceptable to a majority in the House of Commons. And we've already seen, Michael, that the House of Commons is quite prepared to split everywhere. We've seen that in the two votes that took place mm. this week. So the days of all Conservatives, you know, um, voting one way and, and never against their, their own policy or their own plans, that's gone. And we we she, don't know for sure, but it's likely mm. that the same will happen with Labour. Well, so, absolutely. I mean, she could come back with a, a, a Norway double plus divided by a Canadian style agreement or, or whatever they call it. Uh, but she would still have to uh, agree the withdrawal, which must include the backstop. Uh, and the question is, is that possible uh, as the numbers stand? Nobody can say as the numbers stand. But I think as the time approaches, and by the way, I think they will apply for an extension to Article 50. I mean, Theresa May is not giving any commitment on that, but of course she won't. She won't show her hand. She's negotiating, so she's not going to put down her um, her red lines, as it were, mm. at this point. Um, but they will have to look for an extension to Article 50. My understanding will be that that should be uh, granted by the European Union. Maybe there'll be some conditions on it in the sense that there has to be some sort of a political process because, you know, while we're transfixed by this here, and rightly so, in many other parts of Europe, 
yeah, it's important, but it's not it's not crucial. It's not essential. Uh, and the further east you go, the more true that is. So Europe has its own issues and its own problems and needs to deal with them. Brexit is one of them. For some countries, it's massive. For others, not at all. So, uh, you know, it's it, it, Europe also needs to get its business done and, and get on with its plans and policies, etc. So they will, I believe, grant an extension, but not just if the British come and say, look, we think we need another six months, would you give it to us? Um, I think the answer may be yes, but equally uh, they will have to say what they're going to do. Uh, it's, Michael, it's back, it's back to what it always was back to. Mm. What do you want? We, we know what different factions want. But what we don't know is some agreed policy platform. Uh, and I think painstakingly and painfully that, that that may be starting now. We have no evidence uh, as yet that there is any sort of a, a common or agreed platform. But you see, last week, many in the Tory party told Mrs May that if she reached out to the Labour Party and pulled them on board, they would walk. So all of that painful stuff has to be got through, and that's going to take some time. And Michael, unfortunately, you and I and mm. many others will be speaking about this, I believe, for, I won't say years to come, but certainly for many, many months to come before I think we get a, a clearer picture as to, number one, what's on the table, number two, what's possible to negotiate, and number three, what any sort of final agreement might look like. All right, and uh, Mrs May is to bring forward a proposal uh, to MPs on Monday. Uh, yes, this, she is. Th- this is this is uh, I- important and confusing. Maybe you can clarify it for us because Monday is the twenty first of January, and uh, the uh, agreement is uh, that there needs to be a deal in place by the twenty first of January by Monday. Uh, and if that is not the case, the British government has to make a statement within five days on what the UK plans to do. This is uh, according to the Withdrawal Act of two thousand and eighteen, apparently. Yes, so I think we're going to see very soon uh, some request on the extension of Article 50 because time basically Mm. is running out and nearly has run out. And just if you hear the headline this morning as well, Michael, Mm. um, pharmacists in the UK running out of essential drugs Mm. because people are stockpiling. Uh, Yesterday we heard the news that two nuclear energy plants in Wales mm. that would have, I think, delivered certainly up several thousand jobs in construction and maybe mm. a couple of hundred longer-term jobs shelved by the Japanese. In the last period of time, something like seven nuclear plants uh, that were to be built, uh, I think five of them are paused. One of them is going ahead and the other one is unsure. And that gives an indication of the the uncertainty that's in the UK. Mm. That has to be putting uh, ferocious pressure. I mean, once once you begin to see shortages of drugs, Mm. that tells you how people are thinking and that puts real pressure on politicians, even more so than... It's crazy, but it has time in fact, run out. Uh, Am I right in thinking that it's not possible to do it within the legal framework? Uh, Because 
She's come forward with her proposals on Monday uh, and uh, the House of Commons uh, will debate it the following Tuesday, which would be the 29th. Uh, But under European law, the European Union Withdrawal Act of 2018, if uh, they don't make... uh, their position known by this Monday, they have to make a statement within five days on what they plan to do. And that doesn't appear to be possible. So does that mean that they have to apply for an extension this week? I believe if they don't have some sort of a a credible negotiating position, uh, they will, I believe, have to apply for some kind of an extension. And then that really uh, puts them under pressure. But as I said, mm. once people start stockpiling drugs, it's it's worse than stockpiling food in a way because many of these drugs are essential drugs for, for people. It's not just for mm. their health, but for the fact that they remain alive. Now, that scares people very badly. And of course, then that's a vicious cycle mm. because people get frightened and they, they, they try to access the drugs and pharmacists are complaining that the costs are increasing significantly. And that's, you know, two months out from what would be the the date when Britain would leave the EU. So that's a, an indication of, you know, something that, that even governments mm. have no control over. But there's no guarantee that this extension will be given or how long it'll last for, is there? I, I cannot see the EU not giving that extension. But there would have to be a a basis for accepting the need for one, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, in other words. Yes, there would have to be a basis for that. And um, it's it's going to make, for example, a significant difference, I believe, in many countries, including Ireland, Mm. in the upcoming European elections, because those two extra seats that were supposed to be there in Ireland South Mm. and in Dublin, I think may have to wait on the long finger, as it were, because if the British are not gone uh, by the, whenever the date of the European elections is, the 27th of May, uh, then uh, they will have to elect MEPs. So um, we're we're looking at the craziest of crazy scenarios. And I mean, can you just imagine, Michael, for a minute, how that's going to, to feed in to the debate to the already hostile atmosphere and environment in the UK, that they're actually going to look at electing MEPs, given the huge split that's there already. So it's it's a very mm. bumpy and rough ride. What would work, though, for Europe? Uh, I mean, if you forget about uh, the dilemma that the UK finds it itself, uh, they've uh, really put 27 other countries in this impossible position where this thing is going on and overshadowing almost everything else. In this country, at least, it is overshadowing it, uh, everything else. Very little legislation uh, for the first quarter of this year because we have to prepare for a no-deal scenario. And indeed, there's all of the ramifications and uh, ramifications and implications like the stockpiling of drugs that you were talking about. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn's position perhaps uh, would be acceptable uh, in terms of granting an extension if the United Kingdom was committing to leaving and only doing so with a deal, or if the Prime Minister was to come back and say, well, look, we'll hold a second referendum, maybe that would uh, give it enough scope. But outside of that, it's hard to imagine why Europe could continue to be patient with the UK. I think May is determined, certainly until the very last minute, 
not to go for a second referendum. I read something the other day, and the title of it was, <coughs> excuse me, mm-hmm. Last Plan Standing, as in Last Man Standing. And if the second referendum becomes the last plan standing, if Parliament cannot find agreement on something that is negotiable with the EU, then we may get to that point. But I think we are a a distance from it. I'm not sure we'll ever reach it. And I think those of us who would, you know, love to see the UK remaining recognise the dangers that that would bring as well. All right. Uh, a, a new poll, uh, details of which are, are published this morning show a 12-point lead for staying in the EU uh, if a, a, a new referendum was to be held. Well, that's I hadn't heard that. That's a very significant poll because while certainly we saw that there was a swing to leave, um, the fear was that it was such that uh, it, it wouldn't be sufficient to give a clear-cut decision after the last decision of 48-52 or just slightly a little bit more than that for, for mm-hmm. Remain, uh, to get the same decision again, a 4 point or 3.5% switch around would, would give the same uncertainty. If, if you were to have a second referendum, I think you would have to be looking at a minimum of 45-55 to give it, you know, to put mm. clear blue water. Well, th- th- this, is a, this is a YouGov survey. Now, it's for the People's Vote campaign, uh, <laughs> but it, it puts Remain on 56% and against on 44% who want to leave, obviously. Yes, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised that there, as time goes on, uh, there is a swing and perhaps even more so uh, because, you know, um, most people just want to get on with their lives, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, most people have to get up in the morning and get the breakfast and send their kids to school and go to work and do all of those yeah. ordinary, normal And some things, of our listeners you know? have to do it across this border, <laughs> which, which is invisible right. at the moment. And, yeah, and they mm. don't want... Um, kind of thing hanging over them the uncertainty the fear of the unknown and uh, if it looked to people that this was uh, not the way to go I think some of the British public certainly not all but (coughs) excuse me Mm -hmm. but some would be open to changing their minds and also Michael you know something it's the cost of this It's the cost for government and it's the cost for business. Now, Mm. most people don't much mind about the cost for business unless you're in business yourself. People see that as part of what business is. But the cost to government in time and resources is huge. It's absolutely huge. And And of course, we all end up paying the cost of business uh, in one way or uh, another. Uh, We'll leave there for the moment, though, Marion. Thanks uh, for bearing with us. Uh, You've obviously got a frog in your throat. I hope you're well. And uh, indeed, I'm sure we'll talk about this uh, again many times uh, in uh, the coming weeks, if not years for that matter. Marion Harkin is an independent MEP for the Midlands Northwest. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. 
Now, yesterday, Father Peter McVerry told us uh, there should be more emphasis on uh, the government's mortgage-to-rent scheme. This is where people end up renting houses uh, that uh, they had hoped to buy, but for one reason or another couldn't afford uh, the mortgage. Now, this is happening through the iCare housing body and charity, uh, which is uh, seeing 19 people rent houses that they had a mortgage on originally. The iCare body has also uh, approved uh, the purchase of another 571 houses, almost 600 houses in all, meaning that 2,500 people have avoided homelessness. David Hall is Chief Executive of iCare and on the line. Good morning to you, David, and thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about how this works, uh, because you're also the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation, and this is a deal that you have with AIB and indeed the government. Is that right? That's right, Michael. Um, originally, through the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation, we saw a fairly good need for people, you know, who simply can't pay, um, people who had engaged with their banks, and it was irrelevant who owns the loan, be it the bank or a vulture funds. They simply can't pay. They're eligible for social housing. They were going to be evicted from their homes <clears throat> at some stage, and the government had a, a mortgage rent scheme, which needed corrections. Minister Coveney made some changes to it, and we believed having a third-party debtor advocate helping the customers and debtors along the line would help accelerate mortgage rent, which this project, we believe, has done. So we set up an approved housing body as a charity and a regulated approved housing body. Mm. Um, I, I'm a volunteer as, as CEO. Sounds a great title, but actually I've been a volunteer for the last two years setting this up. And um, we've sought funding from AIB Corporate Finance, the first 15 million we drew down before Christmas, and we bought our first 19 homes. And as you mentioned, we've 571 other houses approved. It's, it is a joint venture with the government. 30% of the purchase price is given to us on a preferable loan rate of 2% simple interest over, say, 25 years by the government. And then we borrow the balance and pay uh, <clears throat> whichever bank it is that we're buying the house from. The, the customers <clears throat> surrender back the house to the bank. We buy it from the bank. They stay as a tenant. They're means-tested in accordance with the local authority rules for means-testing for social housing. And the local authority then pay us the balance for their rent locally. So to all intents and purposes, <clears throat> as far as the tenant is concerned, uh, at least uh, this is social housing. Yeah, they get converted. They do lose ownership of their home. They have an mm. option to buy back the house at a price we pay for uh, today uh, over the next 25 years. They they can't flip it on or can't borrow on a subprime basis. We put a charge against the house to ensure they stay there in the event their circumstances change and they can buy it back. So this is a common sense approach. It's a very practical approach. It doesn't allow the house to go into a random um, sale, uh, which might not allow it to be available for social housing. It protects it for social housing stock. Yes, the families stay in their own home, there's no repossession proceedings, there's no court. Families stay for local jobs, for the community and for their kids stay in the local schools. And uh, it restores people's dignity while losing ownership of their home. And did you say the bank sells this at a discounted price? So mortgage rent, the way mortgage rent works is when we borrow to buy the home, just give an example of a €100,000 mm. house, yeah. and we get 30% of that €30,000 from the Department of Housing via the local authority for a 25-year uh, long-term loan. We borrow 70%, 70000 So if the rent locally matches the 70000 then then we can buy the house for 100000 But if the rent locally didn't allow us repay the seventy and the 30000 we'd have to adjust the purchase price to allow us buy it for that price. So it's like a mortgage calculator in reverse, Michael. Whatever the local rent is can only pay how much we can borrow and pay for the house. So AIB, EBS and Haven Mortgages and Permanent TSB have agreed in advance discounted prices 
for, for us to buy houses for to ensure this works, particularly in rural areas, because one of the flaws in the mm. process previously of mortgage rent was the property price was too expensive to buy the house to match the local rent from the local authority. Uh, and can they pick and choose which houses are available to you? No, the eligibility criteria is that the customers uh, must fall into two or three categories. Number one, the house has to be of a modest value, which is 280000 outside Dublin, 365 inside Dublin. The family and the total net income of the family home must meet the local guidelines for social housing. So this is a very prescriptive programme. It's a very clearly designed programme to help those most in need and those who absolutely would enter homelessness because people don't enter social housing anymore because there is no social housing. They enter homelessness and emergency um, housing, um, you know, projects. And this is the least expensive option because uh, HAP is more expensive and emergency accommodation is more expensive. This is just normal, uh, traditional council rent. Okay. Uh, and what is uh, the minimum? Because, uh, as you say, uh, the council rates uh, apply and that depends on your income, doesn't it? Yeah, it depends on your income, and each each unfortunately it's it's a it's a difficult one in the sense that each local council has its own income thresholds, and everybody needs to check with their own local council because they don't have a standardisation process throughout the uh, the country. They don't have a standardisation process for means testing for social housing, nor do they have one for differential rent calculations, um, and nor do they have one for the income for eligibility for social housing. So there is quite a diverse there. So I, I'm always reluctant to get involved in case you get the local authority um, amount mm. wrong, but it is on their website and it is there available to check. And, and you know, for those facing repossession or who've been told the mortgage is unsustainable by a bank, they should contact the local authority. There is a mortgage rent person assigned uh, to see are they eligible for social for social housing and on the list. If they are, then they should approach ourselves as icarehousing.ie and all of the frequently asked questions are there they can come to the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation, MABS, the local personal insolvency practitioner, local councillor, TD, all of whom refer in and all of whom we work with to assess someone's eligibility and progress through the process. It is a bureaucratic enough process, mm. but there's plenty of people there to help um, make this happen. And, and as I say, the first 19 we closed with a significant amount of other homes ready to go. And it's like this is a game changer for those families. This well, is huge, a absolutely. Because, uh, I mean, people go out to buy a house and they'll call it their dream home. Uh, but what about the criticism that this might act as a, a disincentive for people to get work uh, because they can be on the dole and live in their dream home? Yeah, the dream home is, is a very subjective word. These are people who've lost ownership of their home. This is people who have struggled for over seven years. But, for they, stay, but they stay in their home uh, and pay very little in terms of what they would have paid in mortgage repayments. Yeah, they don't own their home and they pay the local authority rent that they would pay in the event they were thrown out and put into social housing or indeed they would actually pay a lot more from, and the state would pay a lot more in half payments or emergency accommodation. So this is a humane and dignified way to do it where people lose ownership of their home. They do have the option and actually I would argue our scheme is different and unfortunately some don't understand the scheme fully. The actual incentive is for you to get back on your feet again. Mm. And the reason the incentive is to get back on your feet again, you're being afforded the opportunity over a 25-year period to buy the property back or to get a new mortgage on the property at the price we've paid for it today. You can flip it on and we put a charge on the property to ensure the difference between today's price and the price of the day you buy it is locked in in the form of a judgment to ensure that you can't flip it on. You must live in the property. But actually, the incentive is reverse. The incentive is to get back on your feet, get a job uh, and get a new mortgage on a much lower mortgage that's affordable for you and your family to stay in your home. So unfortunately, some don't simply understand the scheme or have chosen not to read the details 
of the scheme. What about the criticism that it discriminates against people who are already on housing waiting lists uh, and uh, haven't had this opportunity, perhaps went through the same circumstances and lost their home, uh, but aren't being handed this and may be in more need of the people that, than the people who are, who are allowed to stay in their homes? Well, they wouldn't be in more need because anybody who's on eligible for social housing is, is on par and is equal. Um, they, maybe they were badly advised not to have looked at mortgage rent because it's been available since 2012. It's not been perfectly executed by any manner of means, but it's been available since 2012. And, you know, most people in Ireland and this vast majority of people are, are, are human and are humane and like to see people's dignity. And many uh, don't begrudge somebody else an opportunity to protect themselves. This is not someone being bettered. This is somebody being housed in the context of an emergency crisis of homelessness that I believe will escalate over the next five years to a catastrophe. And this protects those people in a dignified manner, but also in a a fiscally responsible manner for the state and doesn't burden the local authority with additional hassle and stress and costs of trying to house people and emergency accommodation. There are only so many uh, hotel rooms in this state. And, um, you know, that has an, an impact on everybody. And it is not an acceptable practice to be putting people into homes on a long-term basis or into hotel rooms on a long-term basis. And no scheme is perfect, um, but this most certainly in the round, we believe, gets as close to it as you're ever going to get. All right. Well, as it stands, it's having a significant impact on some 2,500 people, as you said at the outset. Thank you indeed for joining us to tell us about it this morning. David Hall is Chief Executive Officer of iCare Housing. Michael Reed on LMFM. Most of uh, the crimes that are committed in rural Ireland go unreported, uh, according to Michael Heady Ray, who's a TD in Kerry. He was speaking uh, to a private member's motion in uh, the doll that was brought forward by independent TDs uh, that would establish a rural crime task force review how bail is granted to people see that free legal aid is not given to repeat offenders review trespass laws make funding available to schemes such as text alert or business watch invest in Garda over time commit to Garda initiatives like Operation Thor and see more rural Garda stations reopen. Michael Healy Ray is on the line with us and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us Uh, you say that you know of nine people personally uh, who were victims of crime and uh, just two of those nine had reported it to Gardaí. Yes, first of all, Michael, I want to readily acknowledge the work done by our whip of our group, uh, Deputy Matthew McGrath from Tipperary and uh, uh, the people that prepared a lot of uh, the wording and that that went into this motion. It's a very important motion because I, I believe that rural Ireland is under attack and what I mean by that is that with an improved road network in many areas, people who live in cities, uh, thugs, blagards, villains, they can easily steal a motor car, a high-powered car, travel a long journey, go to a rural area, commit horrible crimes, uh, terrorise our older population, which is a thing I have a particular hang-up on. And I'm not for one second trying to say that one crime is okay and one crime is not. Mm. But I want to highlight the fact that any person that will, you know, break into an older person's house and to put a hand on that older person and hurt them or terrorise them, or even when they're out of their home, to break into their home and steal their hard-earned belongings, these are the people that, only for them, we wouldn't be here at all. And mm. we must readily recognise that our parents, our grandparents, aunties, uncles, people that we all adore. And and to think of those type of people 
you know, their personal lives being interfered with by a, a roaming gang of these scum. And you see, these people, they're the worst type of little gorriers because they're really cowards behind it all, you know? Mm. And if they went into a house where they expected to meet uh, maybe perhaps an elderly person, and if some fine, big, strong strapper of a, of a young man was to confront them, I can guarantee you whether it would be one or three of them, they'd be gone mm-hmm. like the little worms that they are. But if they and come across an elderly person, uh, it is likely that we'll hear about it uh, because we hear uh, about these crimes when people fall victim to them. And I suppose there's no such thing as a, a victimless crime. Uh, but uh, the, the, the impact is probably less obvious in some incidents and you were talking about uh, someone's uh, belongings being taken from inside their car after somebody broke the windscreen right. somebody's well, home well, eating well, oil was taken on them uh, and these are the type of things that we don't tend to hear about that's right and what I did was and it was nine people that I was friendly with that were the victims of crime and I took the liberty because I knew them and I had their telephone numbers I rang them and I said would you mind me asking one simple straight question did you report to a crime and out of the nine, two had reported it. Mm. So when I hear on Garda Shikana, and I don't, I under no circumstances am I blaming the guards or anything for this. What I'm trying to tell people is that our guards can only go with the information that they're given. Mm. So if, if a person thinks that, well, the oil was stolen from my tank, or the diesel for the tractor was stolen in the ad, and yeah. half the tank disappeared, and Arisha, look, I won't be wasting my local guard's time. Oh, I won't go the, the local station. Mm. Yes, what's mm. the point? Mm. But you see, the point is, if you don't report it, it's not a statistic. If it's not a statistic, the guards, and then in turn, the politicians, like the Minister for Justice, then absolutely no fault of his either, mm. will stand up on the doll and say, well, you know, rural crime is exaggerated because there's not that, that many actual reports. And, and your, 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 your ring around uh, is not what you would call a scientific survey, but it is very real. They're real people. You spoke to them and you discovered that 65% of the yes. crimes had not been reported. And if that actually follows through, uh, well, then maybe you're talking about 10% or 20% or 30% or at least it's true to say that an awful lot of crimes are not being reported. Uh, well, the way I, and I hate generalising, mm. but you know, I wouldn't, it would be no exaggeration to say that half of the crimes that are perpetrated in Ireland are not reported in any shape or form. Mm. And anybody that thinks that I'm wrong about that, ask around yourselves. Take, for instance, yourself, Mikey. Mm. If you were to ask people that you know that their car might have had something stolen out of it or a mobile phone wrapped mm. from a pocket in a, in a, in a, in a public place or something, mm. ask those people, well, did you report that? Well, I was just speaking I, to somebody recently, and I hope they don't mind me saying it because I, I, I'd be surprised if they're not listening now, and they were telling me that somebody broke into their house, uh, they reported it to, to the Gardaí, the Gardaí never came, they called the Gardaí, they said, are you going to come up or what's the story? And they said, well, was anything taken, uh, any damage? And they said, no. And I said, well, do you really want us to come up? And they said, I'll leave it. And then they were broken into again, and they said, well, look, I'm not going to bother reporting it this time. Well, there you are. And you see, if you don't report it, there's no record of it. And then how can we tackle crime if we don't know how much is going on? Now, our bill that we brought before the House, our motion, what we're trying to do is get our legislators to recognise that the judiciary, the, 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 the lawmakers, the, the, the people enforcing law, uh, if we don't make harder laws, it, harder laws can't be enforced. What I want to see is stricter 
sentencing for people, especially repeat offenders. And it doesn't make sense that if a person will rob one house or five houses, that it will be treated the same as if it was one house they had broken into. So they have nothing to lose by robbing from 10 people rather than one, because if they're going to get caught, mm. they may as well get caught for a lot as get caught. In and other words, like the indeed, old I've, I've heard it said many times that that's when they tend to carry out most burglaries. Of course, and when they're out on bail then, they've absolutely, they, like, they go on, on a rampage altogether. And we've seen people being horrifically, uh, you know, uh, harmed, killed, uh, murdered. We've seen the most horrific crimes happen while people are out on bail. So the whole system of letting people out, the whole system of revolving doors in the in our in our uh, jails has to be seriously looked at because it, it's up to us. It's it's on our watch that this is going wrong. And when I say our watch, I mean people like me who are in opposition and who hold the government to task. People in government, we all have to work together. And this is not a us against them on, on this occasion. This is us all working together to try and ensure that. Um, that, that we will make Ireland a better and safer place to live. Because the one thing that every one of us want, absolutely, is that an older person that's living down the end of a lane, that they needn't be afraid of a car coming down that road late at night. Because long ago, my impression of when a person called to a house was, if a, if a gate was held opening or a light was seen coming, the people inside the house were delighted because it was a case of, well, who's coming now with some story or some bit of gossip or some bit of crack or some bit of news. But instead now, people are actually afraid if they hear something out in the yard late at night. It's a case of, oh my God, I wonder who's that. Whereas before, the door wasn't locked and everybody was welcome. Now people have to set alarms and we have older people yeah. who are literally terrified. And I just think that's so wrong because life is so shocked and we want our older people that we respect. We want them to be able to live in happiness and, and that they won't be worried about everything and that they can be looking forward to their grandchildren calling to see them and that they needn't be afraid of anything. And All I right. think that's so important. Okay, and uh, I did note as well that the uh, ongoing uh, criminal feud in Drogheda was mentioned uh, during uh, the debate by Declan Bronick, uh, but we have to leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining yes. us here on the programme. Any, any time at all, all right? Much appreciated. And, and good luck to all your, yourself and your listeners for the new year and uh, I wish you all every good luck, health and happiness oh, that's for 2019. Very nice. Thank you very much indeed and uh, many happy returns to you and thank you as I say for joining us uh, this morning. Independent TD for Kerry, Michael Healy Ray. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Brendan was in touch and he has a pain in his head, Michael. He wants to tell us and the reason he has the pain in his head is because he's sick of listening about Brexit and Theresa May. Okay. We I have thought a- you were going to say he was out last night. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of other things going on in this country. So can we stop talking about Brexit and move to other subjects? Okay. Mary got in touch and Mary says that she was listening to the Vox Pop that we did yesterday and she thinks that there should be a dictionary, a Brexit dictionary explaining what the meanings of all the different talk, if you like, Mm. associated with Brexit because it's very hard for the ordinary person Mm. to understand it all. It is indeed. It's very hard, I think, for everybody to understand at this stage. 
Um, Michael, I think that the UK needs to seek an extension of Article 50. There is no sign of this deal being agreed and nobody wants the UK leaving without a deal because it would be good for nobody. Mm. Seamus phoned in and says that he's astounded, Michael, to think that motorists crossing into the north will now have to get this green card or whatever they're talking about to cover them for insurance and is it is it right what they're saying that you'll have to notify your insurance company in advance if you're going to travel so that you'll be covered this is absolutely ridiculous and I don't know what is going on on that very same mm-hmm. subject um, Elizabeth from Drogheda also phoned in and says she's a brother living in Belfast goes up and down to see him regularly and uh, has no problems but now uh, it turns out she might have to have different insurance or be get mm, additional insurance mm, mm. and things that this is crazy and is wondering why is this? Is this the insurance companies that are doing this or what? Well, it's because it's a different jurisdiction and yes. the same regulations. These European regulations won't apply. I mean, people will remember, and it's not that long ago, that you would have needed a European driving licence to drive in some of the European countries. Today, you don't need that. You just go over and your own licence, your Irish licence, is a European licence. And if Britain isn't in the EU, well, then it's not a license that applies in that jurisdiction and I think that's the problem and that's the green card to say that you are licensed and insured as a result. From Paul who texts in would you please Michael ask Jim Wells when you talk to him again would he when we get a beautiful united Ireland continue to live in a beautiful united Ireland or would he do like his party leader Arlene Foster said several months ago when she said she will leave our beautiful Ireland when we become united just curious says mm. Paul yeah well I, I imagine Jim Wells would say that he, you'll never see a united Ireland and if you do he won't be alive it'll uh, be that far away and Mark phoned in to say that he cannot understand why uh, politicians in the UK and indeed the DUP in the North are so against the backstop that to him it makes complete sense mm. when most people if you're in any way sensible mm. says Mark don't want to do anything that might jeopardise the peace process uh, Yeah, but what, what, what did he say people are against what? the backstop the what? Oh, Michael, stop. The Bag f- stop. <laughs> is, that, is that the opposite of a front stop? <laughs> the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Or a full stop. You tell me, you're the expert. <laughs> or an around-the-corner stop. 
What is the backstop? I mean, we talk about the backstop day in and day out. Everybody's talking about the backstop, but what is it? Well, that's the question, Marie, that you ask people in Dundalk. It's a, it's a, uh, it's hard to describe. It's very complicated, but it's it's a, it's a, it's a kind of secure security for Ireland that if Britain decide in a couple of years' time that they're no, no longer going to abide by rules and regulations Im- implemented by the EU, that we will be protected from any goods that are illegal in Europe coming into Ireland from the UK. Basically that, and along with a lot of other stuff, but mainly that. I have no idea. What does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. I don't know. That's grand. Thanks a million. The backstop is the ability to be able to keep a custom-free border and it's um, it's something we need to keep. Um, I would like I wouldn't like to think that maybe by getting a hard border again, it would bring back the troubles. Nobody wants that again. No, haven't a clear, not a clear. And well, most of us around here know what the backstop is because it concerns us that if we don't have an open border, then we live trouble. And for those of us that are around long enough and living long enough, we know what it was like to become a true customs before. I wouldn't have a clue what it meant. I don't be really looking at politics, so... You know, like, Ireland and UK, like, usually being, like, a common travel area, it won't happen. Like, whatever happened between the EU and the UK, it's not going to happen between Ireland, because it's different. Ireland, dealing with Ireland and UK, it's totally different. Because the UK took part of Ireland, so <laughs> they can't they can't disagree with Ireland. So. The backstop is if there's no deal or... Well, not if, if they come to a deal until that... Well, until, until the trade deal gets done, the North stays within, stays in alignment with the EU. So, essentially, that means the whole UK is going to be in alignment with the EU because May had say, has said that there won't be any difference between the North and the UK. So, backstop pretty much means everything stays the same until a new trade deal is, is signed. It's sort of a hold back on it. Yeah. Would that be, well, backstop, uh, I don't really understand that one, really, no. But that'd be my take on it—a sort of hold up on it, yeah. Not really. I'm confused again over that. Um, there's different reports about it. There's a lot of concern, but I guess is that no matter what happens, there will not be a hard border. And I think that's what our government is looking for—is a deal, but n- what well, with no hard border ever. All right. Well, I think, Marie, sometimes uh, the simplest of questions are the most difficult ones to answer. But uh, I think uh, most people have the gist of it there. And uh, put very simply, the backstop means uh, that Northern Ireland will remain in the single market and the customs union until such time that another deal is agreed with the other 27 European countries. So, what else have people been saying? <laughs> well, if I can just stay on Brexit, if I can, for one or two more comments. Margaret texts in and Margaret says, Theresa May didn't put that deal to MPs on her own. She had Davis, Johnson and Rab, who all accepted it, but then turned tail and ran, just like Cameron. That's four men who couldn't take the heat. At least she stood her ground. When the U- When is it the UK want uh, to... They want to be out, but they want to have the benefits of being in, and you can't have it every way. Okay, thanks, Margaret. Uh, I think uh, we better uh, get uh, a telephone line connected to London now because uh, that might come as a surprise uh, to Johnson, Davis, and Rab. 
uh, we had a, a tweet from a listener to say that uh, during your discussion yesterday with Senator Gerald Nash to say that the UK Labour Party policy is not to stay in the customs union rather it's to have a customs union with the EU very different things with very different impacts on Ireland uh, the Senator's portrayal of Jeremy Corbyn's position is roast tinted at best mm, God I didn't think uh, Gerald Nash was too complimentary of the Labour Party leader in the UK mm. Then moving from that then to your interview just uh, there with David Hall in relation to uh, the housing and the, and the body Mortgage buying. Mortgage to rent, up. yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a listener says that it's very heartening to listen to David Hall because so far there hasn't been much positive action in relation to the housing crisis and it's this type of housing action that we need to help owners who are threatened with eviction. Okay. Uh, another listener says that, that Jack actually texted in to say mm. that should councils be buying up property that can be easily sold on the open market? He's aware of a case that of the bank selling by auction last year a house to a local couple only for the paperwork to fall through. But now could the council have compulsory bought the house and so cut out the chance of a local person buying it if it went for auction. Okay. Someone yeah. to raise it's that. a complicated question. A very good question, I have to say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, David was listening in to Michael Healy Ray and mm. says that we need to question the the I suppose the repercussions of the closing down of the rural guard stations mm. and that this has left rural Ireland, as David puts it, open to criminals coming out of cities and into rural areas where they know maybe there's a quicker getaway because there isn't a big mm. guard presence. Yeah. No, I think a lot of people uh, will identify with many of the things that Michael Healy Ray was talking to us about uh, this morning, but I'm not sure how many people will, like me, be surprised to hear that just two out of nine victims of crime that he spoke to had reported know, it to Gardaí. that's madness, isn't it, Michael? Mm. Yeah, it really, really is. is. Yeah. Mm. Anne phoned in, I'll just with Anne mm-hmm. because she phoned in and said that she loves listening to uh, Michael Healy Ray oh, God, yeah. on the show. Mm-hmm. She says that he says it as it is and always speaks from the heart. All so right. there you go. Well, A big thanks, fan. Uh, <laughs> positive call there, Anne. Thank you indeed uh, for that and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you would like to add to what's been said, as always, we would love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. OK, let's uh, leave Brexit to one side for a moment as people have been saying there are other issues in uh, the country and uh, for at least 20 years we've been talking about uh, a children's hospital in uh, this country. The process of building that is now underway but as you've been hearing there is a significant overspend in terms of what was estimated and what will be finally spent. The uh, estimate has gone up and up over the years from around $400 million originally to 983 million which was approved by the government in 2017 for the facility which is being built on the site of St James's Hospital in Dublin that figure has increased by almost half a billion euro to 1.433 billion euro. Uh, This will be explained to members of uh, the Health Committee next week and we'll talk about this now with Independent TD for Loud, Peter Fitzpatrick. You've been a a member of that committee and undoubtedly you've been watching this bill soar over the years. Uh, What do you make of what we've been hearing now? Because this doesn't include the cost of uh, accommodation for families which will be a vital part of it and at the end of the day, we're looking in the region of 
2 billion euro, the most expensive hospital uh, and hospital facility in the world. Michael, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me onto your programme. Uh, the first thing is, this is actually a disgrace. Like, jumping from 637 million all of a sudden now to 1.73 million, it makes no sense whatsoever. And in fairness to Stephen Donnelly and uh, Fianna Ford, he asked the questions there. Like, like it, it, this, this was a private business. S- someone has to be fired. Like, the first question I ask myself is, do we need a new children's hospital? And the bottom line is, we do. There's three children's hospitals involved here at the moment. Is There's Our Lady's Children's Hospital in Crumlin. There's Temple Street Children's University Hospital. And there's also the, the, uh, the National Children's Hospital in Tala. Hmm. Like, for example, I, look, I was just looking at the figures, Michael Dale, in 2013. Uh, over 33,000 emergency uh, uh, operations or te- people attended the, the new children's sorry the, uh, the children's hospital in uh, Our Lady in Our Ladies in Crumlin. Hmm. There was 17,000 daycare cases. There was over n- nearly 10,000 inpatient admissions, and there was over 10,000 surgical procedures. Mm. And if you look then at the, at the Temple Street, very old building yeah, as well. Yeah, 145,000 mm. children mm. attend mm. there each year. Mm. 45,000 with emergencies. Mm. And then when you also look at the National Children's Hospital in Tallaght, it's the same. Mm. Like the thing is, we do need it, but we, like, I'm not trying to be smart. Mm. Is who is looking after the, the, the cost? For example, is uh, in, in, I'm married now 35 years. In mm. my 35 years, I've built three houses. And Michael, it's, it's probably the most expensive thing I've ever done in my life is. But I will tell you, whether it was a daily or weekly, I visited there, I kept it, and I in, in, in the situation was, and maybe it might go over maybe a thousand or mm. two thousand. But when you look at, 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 at like, like, like planning permission was given to the hospital in 2016, like this is three years ago now the moment is, and all of a sudden, like the, the, the teacher came out there on the, on the 18th of December there in 2018, and he came in with the last figure that was going to cost 1.4 billion. Mm, mm. Now you all of a sudden down the road it's 1.73 billion. Like, wh- where do we go from here at the moment? Is it's, there's, there's something seriously, seriously wrong. As I said he is, and, and you just said earlier on, is, this has gone on for decades. We do need the hospital. But where's the money going to come from? And I maintain is the only way the, where the money's going to come from is going to be from taxpayers. Mm. And then what's going to happen then is, what are we, all these other capital jobs at the moment is? I see the teacher also come out during the week and he stated there that uh, a lot of these capital uh, adventures will be delayed or they could even be cancelled and everything else at the moment is. And like, and like, listen, I put my hands up. I'm in, I, I, I've left Fine Gael in the 30th of September there. I'm now independent. I was part of the government from 2011 and everything else. And, uh, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not been any sour grapes I'm not, I'm, my bottom line I always said Mike in your programme from day one is mm. the most important thing to anybody is their health and especially children and everything else at the moment is and I think we're, we're going to have one of the best if not the best hospital for children in the world and I appreciate that there but at a cost of 1.73 it just makes completely mm. and utterly no sense to me Yeah not a lot of money when you say it quickly 1,730 million euro 1.73 billion it will be the most expensive hospital in the world and are you suggesting that the reason that the cost has soared out of hand like this is because they've taken their eye off the ball? There's no doubt whatsoever. Now, listen, in fairness, it's a massive hospital. It's 158,000 uh, uh, square metres. Uh, like, you know, it's, it's, like, like I heard people asking mm. questions at the moment. It's like, you're going to have, up, up as far as, you're going to have uh, 600 rooms. Mm. You're going to have uh, over between four and 500 beds and everything else. Mm. I, it's going to be absolutely fantastic and it's going to suit everybody else. 600 rooms, 600 children, 600 patients. Mm. Is that a good idea? I mean... 
there are questions, I think, to be asked about having individual rooms for children, uh, for anybody for that matter, in a hospital setting. It's not a nice place to be. Uh, and quite often you hear of elderly people who are in single rooms like that who are bored. Uh, and children need to interact with other people. All well and good if they family members, perhaps, who are with them all day. That's not always the case, as we know, unfortunately. Uh, so you may have children languishing in rooms on their own, feeling very sick. Well, Michael, as, as I said to you, in, in 2013, if, if you take the Our Lady Children's Hospital and come in, like as I said to you, there was, uh, there was 33,000 emergency uh, mm. operations as such. But I'm trying to say to you, Michael, is when, when, when someone is sick and the only people who want to them, Michael, is the, is, is the medical staff, it's the doctors and their families. And you know, like, I visited these hospitals mm. before, and I, I will be honest with you, if anyone with any kind of gumption at all would leave that hospital, there'd be tears coming out of eyes. Mm. It's just not a nice place to be. No, I know, but uh, you, you know when you're in hospital, you, you know, you tend to make friends with the people on the same ward as you and that sort of thing. And there's collegiality or friendship or whatever it is, interaction. You can identify with each other and how are you doing and all that sort of thing. And children are no different in that sense, but they also need some stimulation. And to be in a room on their own, in particular for children who don't have people coming in to them family members and that sort of thing I, I'm not sure if it's the wisest way forward Well Michael I believe also there is also a, a play area for, for children there mm. at the moment and, and, in, and in fairness this is going to be one of the best hospitals in the world Oh I, I know I, I but, think, uh, but some of these children will be bed bound Yeah yeah, but Michael uh, like, there's going to be like 3,600 staff there at the moment like, mm. there's, going to be, there's going to be a lot of people interacting mm. there at the moment and like I don't think there's a family mm. in, in Ireland that never one stage had to take their children to one of these hospitals mm. Mm. and even, even if it's an individual room on your right side people will always mingle with anybody else but mm. I'm just saying the, the reason this hospital is, isn't built is, is for the, the looking after children that's really 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 sick Oh I understand and you go into hospitals and A&E's people will tell you are like war zones and nobody wants that but do we need to go to the other extreme and the reason I'm asking it uh, is because I, I think it's a valid question in, in terms of uh, the child's care and their well-being when they're in the hospital but also in terms of the cost uh, this cost could be reduced dramatically if there weren't single rooms for every child who is a patient in the hospital well I, I presume uh uh, before they even thought about building this hospital, I'm sure that they got all these specialists, all these specialist people that's that involved in children's hospitals all around the world. I believe that the, you know the government would, mm. would, would have visited other they, hospitals in, in, in other jurisdictions and such. And as uh, we, we, they, they, we, they did it in a, a geriatric unit in St James's Hospital as well, and they have single rooms for elderly people who are there. Uh, and they brought in all the experts in the world, and they said that that was the best thing for them. The older people are giving out; they're bored. Michael, there's a massive difference between a, a young person, especially children from one years or even young or up as far as maybe seven or eight. Maybe so, yeah. but the expert, the expert yeah. said it was yeah. good for older people. The older people who were there said, or some of them at least, from what I hear, said, no, I, I'm bored. I'd, I'd like somebody to talk to. Well, I know for a fact if my, my children, my, if my child mm. or my children had to go to the, to the, to the children's uh, hospital, I would want to make sure that, that they were getting the best, look, mm. best service looked after. I feel as though like, uh, having a room, an individual room, I, I don't see a problem with that there. As I said to you, uh, as the child progresses, mm. there's, there's, there's a play facility for the child to go down. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, there's, there's expos that, 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 that would have visited okay. all over the world. Okay. And like, mm. right, 
uh, like the bottom line at the moment is mm. uh, this. This has gone on for decades. Uh, maybe you're right. You know, I'm not going to uh, hammer the point or anything like that. It's just a, a point uh, in terms of looking at the cost, uh, that the cost could have been reduced and maybe it would have been for a good purpose, uh, but maybe not. So uh, let's no. move on from well, that. No, 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 I do agree. To it. it's, it's, there's something seriously wrong here. Uh, like all of a sudden, in 2016, uh, it was costing $637 million. Now, in 2019, it's going to cost $1.73 billion. There's something seriously wrong there at the moment. It's, 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 it's over 100%. And if, 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 if you have a look, they're, they're talking about extras of $450 million. Like $450 million mightn't seem a lot to a lot of people. Mm. But I was just looking there this morning, coming, coming into your program this morning, was $21 million for additional for sanitary fittings, theatre lights, uh, $94 million for drainage pipes. Like these are all things that should be included in stage one. Mm. Like twenty-seven million extra for fire sprinklers and fire protection. There's one thing too when when you're building mm. a hospital, which is a public hospital as such. Like and one of people coming in from the from the streets. Like these 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 are things. These are simple things that even a child would know. These things had yeah. to put in because and, the bill is actually one point four three billion. Yeah. Uh, equipping it brings it up to this figure of one point seven three billion, which is what uh, an extra three hundred million. Michael, also ninety million for actual. For, for an extension of an extra nine months. 90 million. 22 million for contractors' claims. What's contractors' claims? And then all of a sudden... Well, well, what's, million the, for, what's the 90 million? That's an extension. That, I presume that's to pay wages for the extra time that people will be working on yeah, the project, like, is it? Yeah, 90 million for nine months extension. Like, like this, this hospital's going to open in 2022, which is fantastic. Million. So it's 10 million uh, in per salaries. Month, per month. Per month, uh, would that would that be just salaries, what or maybe it? it's the hire of equipment, or what is it? Well, no, 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 because they, they, they've they've other money here. Mm. Let's see this here: twenty million was for omissions in stage one designs. They left like cables, they left like pipes and cladding. Like left them out. Like like to me, like these. This board was set up, and they're supposed to have the best of people on these boards. They're architects, consultants, yeah. planners, engineers, and all of a sudden they're leaving out simple things. Hold on a second. How does that work? I mean, you said you built three houses, right? Uh, if you think back on those houses and your builder came back to you and said, oh, we forgot to do the wiring. Uh, you'll have to pay us twice to do the wiring. Actually, you'll have to pay us twice to do the wiring and you'll also have to pay us to strip the wall down and then replaster it. Uh, what would you say to them? Michael, I remember years ago, Michael, uh, I be on an electrical wholesale business and a man came in and he paid me 2,000 euros cash for, for work which was grand no problem yeah. at all and he, he handed me the money right and yeah. he says to me count the money and I didn't count the money I say I trusted him mm. that man left my premises I counted the money there was a hundred pound short I couldn't go after that man and ask him for that hundred euros because I trusted him this tenders out since 2016. Quotations have been given. They've been given ample opportunities. Like, mm. I'm not trying, like, but then, if, it, if it was your house and the builder hadn't wired it, you'd say to him, I'm not going to pay you again for that. Wouldn't you? You'd say you should have done it in the first place. That was your job. That's what I'm paying for you to begin with. The government is paying people to look after this. Mm. Like, I've, I've done no insurance over this here at the moment. Like, I'm not, for, for example, the thing is, when you're building this hospital, it's probably broken down to maybe four or five different main jobs in the thing. And like... Like, as I said to you, is, is, is the Minister for Health, is the Taoiseach, mm. like, is there no one examining this in, in a weekly or a daily basis? This is the biggest project we have in Ireland. And in fairness, the whole world is looking at yeah. what we're doing here at the moment. Is, and, 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 and it's well underway, but uh, is there a risk that they might forget to put the roof on it? 
Well, you know, uh, and we'd have to pay for a second roof. Well, I don't think too many people would have confidence there. Like, like as I said to you, Michael, is uh, if if you got someone to do your uh, do your do your house or do a job for you, and they left a simple mm. thing out, like like the, the amount of money there, as I said, in drainage, like drainage is, is, is one of the first things you do. Like mm. this St James's side, mm. it's in fairness to me, yeah, it's a huge site. It's a huge uh, thing uh, at the moment, yeah. and there's one thing for sure. It's 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 supposed to be a twelve acre site. That one of the first things you do will be checking the drainage. Yeah, and like, like leaving leaving even the drainage out there at the moment, it, it makes no sense. Whatsoever, and then also twenty-two million for contractors' claims. Like, what is that there? And like, there's also a thirty-six million for additional staff, mm. office insurances, and like, and th- 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 it just adds up and adds up and adds up. I'm just saying to myself is who was looking after this job for a start? Mm. Like the Minister for Health and the Taoiseach, they have to take responsibility for this. This is taxpayers' money. Like in, in your mm. program there last week, we have nurses who's looking for pay rises, we have teachers mm. looking for pay rises, and th- these are people that's doing a fantastic job. What do we do? Do we turn around and say to them, No, we don't give you any any increases, uh we we we're building a hospital, we made a mistake, we forgot to put A, B and C in, and the money that you should be getting well, we're going to give to these people who made a balls of of, of, of the all oh, right. Well, that's uh, putting it mildly, some would say. Uh, but look, uh, we'll be hearing more about this next week uh, because uh, the HSE, uh, or at least the Department of Health, along with the HSE, I think will be in front of uh, the Health Committee uh, and uh, the Public Accounts Committee is also to look uh, at why the cost has soared to the extent that it has. Thank you very much indeed, though, for coming into us this morning. That's Independent TD in Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Friday for our review of the contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and Senators from Counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here's our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth Meath Oireachtas Report. We begin a roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Wednesday. A question on the status of the public services card arising from reports that its functions may not be in accordance with the law was raised by Sinn Féin TD John Brady. In response, Social Protection Minister and Fine Gael TD for Meath East Regina Doherty said an investigation into the legality of the card is expected to be published soon. You're well aware that the Data Protection Office had particular issues. They wrote to us, but they specifically told us not to discuss the report with absolutely anybody, and that's the reason that the report uh, or the FOI was refused, because it's still ongoing. Uh, What we've done is is we've replied, uh, as requested by the Office of the Data Protection uh, Commission, to the concerns that they've raised, and we await a response from them. But when this is all over, or when the final result um, comes of the investigation, I'm sure both the Department of Social Protection um, and the Data Protection will issue the report. Plans to adjust local property tax rates was raised in the Dáil on Wednesday. Fianna Fáil TD from Meath West, Shane Castles, told the Taoiseach that the signs are that homeowners in County Meath will get hit hard. Uh, you made uh, reference to the fact that county councils, uh, it is your intention that they be able to retain uh, all of the local property tax raised in their own areas. Now, if you take that uh, course of action, uh, a number of county councils uh, whose coffers would benefit uh, big counties such as Dublin, indeed my own county as Mead as well. But my question is, how are you going to square the circle between having what you term modest increases for homeowners and at the same time your intention of allowing councils to retain all the taxes raised, while counties such as Meads and Dublin will see an increase on one hand in funding raised off the backs of homes in their own areas, but on the other hand a reduction in central government uh, funding taken off them on the other hand so that uh, money can be sent elsewhere. Thank you, Deputy. 
Taoiseach. I appreciate that there is a, a feeling out there that because people's uh, house prices have gone up by so much in the last couple of years uh, that they will see a corresponding increase in their property tax. Uh, that won't happen. Uh, we will reform the bans and the rates to ensure that any increase will be modest. In many cases, there will be no increase at all, and some, some people may even see uh, a reduction depending on their value of the value of their house. The so-called Rainy Day Fund legislation, or National Surplus Bill, was introduced in the Dáil on Wednesday. Minister of State and Fine Gael TD for Me, the East, Helen McEntee, told the House that the bill will ensure a build-up of financial reserves to fund capital projects in the event of any future financial collapse. The Rainy Day Fund, which will now be known as the National Surplus Exceptional Contingencies Reserve Fund, will be an economic buffer available for drawdown in the event of a sharp sharp economic downturn. This will allow the government of the day to mitigate the effects of that downturn. In particular, it will allow capital investment to continue even if there is a sharp reduction in tax receipts. We have experience of such a sudden crash where because we had no available reserves, current expenditure was cut back severely and capital programmes came to a near complete halt. Our aim in establishing the National Surplus Exceptional Contingency Reserve Fund is that in the event of a future shock, we can maintain capital programmes in particular. The Health Service Executive Bill was discussed in the Dáil on Wednesday and aims to make the HSE answerable to a board instead of a directorate, which is the current arrangement. Fine Gael TD for Louth, Fergus O'Dowd told the Dáil that the HSE has to be reformed as it has become a law unto itself and is completely ignoring the drug problem in Drogheda. I and other people have tried to get a needle exchange programme. We've tried to get recognition for an excellent, a top-class voluntary, the Red Door Project in Drogheda. They don't have a proper outreach service because they can't afford it. And when myself and Senator Nash made representations to the Minister, the official involved wrote a letter uh, naming me and naming Senator Nash as, as using our political position with the Red Door to get them funding. And what should she do? And what happened? Nothing happened. The project got no funding, at least, and it hasn't got it to date. No consultation with Red Door, no consultation with the Gardaí, no consultation with bloody well anybody. So the HSE, again, is not accountable, and it's not helping where, where it is critically and essentially needed. Fianna Fáil called on the government to properly engage with the Irish Nurses Organisation and Psychiatric Nurses Association in advance of industrial action to find a suitable outcome. Speaking in the Dáil on Wednesday, Fianna Fáil TD for Me, the East, Thomas Byrne, called on Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue to engage with the parties instead of criticising them on the national airwaves. No substantive engagement, as the motion says, has taken place so far. And that's what needs to happen. And I'm strongly urging you to do that and to listen to what the nurses are saying and talk to them. And I'm strongly encouraging the government to do that. And you've come in here this evening, Minister, with very smooth mood music. But the truth is some of your colleagues have not been the same. And they've set a very bad mood mood music for this particular strike by immediately coming out uh, and attacking uh, the INMO instead of actually leaving the industrial relations processes to work their way through and for government to talk. Your backbenchers were out attacking the nurses, Minister Regina Doherty, whatever the views of it, but misrepresenting what the nurses were were saying on television is not helpful to the process. And it is true uh, that nurses are extremely hardworking. 
Uh, they don't get breaks most of the time. Those who work in hospitals, they simply they have to work on social hours. But that's, they, they know that they've signed up for that. But the state needs to recognise that. Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster told the House that the €1.2 million Euro spent on agency staff every week would be better spent on recruiting full-time nurses. Services are understaffed and underfunded. Nurses work longer hours here than most other countries. Their work can sometimes be dangerous and it is often very difficult, and they are underpaid. The INMO are asking for the pay of nurses and midwives to increase in line with therapeutic grades in the HSE. The government has rejected this, saying that they can't afford it. We all know that this is a nonsense. We have plenty of money in this state if the government would only spend it wisely. Instead of spending millions a year subsidising private landlords, we could build social housing. It's the same here. Instead of spending £1.2 million a week on agency staff to make up for the shortage of staff nurses, they could just pay nurses properly. The Dáil was told on Tuesday that over 1,300 houses have now benefited from the Pyrite remediation scheme. Minister of State and Fine Gael TD for Meath West, Damien English, said the budget committed so far for the works is €32 million. Euro. The latest figures spring up to date on this uh, indicate that a total of 2,243 applications have been received under the Pyrite remediation scheme. Of these, 1,801 dwellings have been included in the scheme and the applicants notified accordingly. 494 applications have been validated and referred to the housing agency for the assessment and verification process, while another 199 applications were at the initial application and validation stage. 149 applications under the scheme were not successful. Of the 1,801 dwellings have been included in the scheme to date, 174 are at remedial works planning stage, 27 are at the tender, tender analysis stage, 268 are under remediation, 1,332 are complete. A sum of 32 million is available to fund the operation of the pirate remediation scheme this year. This allocation will facilitate the remediation of some 460 additional dwellings and is a clear signal of the continuing importance attached by government to addressing the issue of significant pirate damage in dwellings. Sinn Féin TD for Loud, Gerry Adams called on the government to confirm if it will or will not reconstruct customs posts on the border once Brexit takes effect. He made his call in the Dáil on Thursday. Last week, Minister Ross suggested that border checks are inevitable in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And Minister Ross is right. Unless the government refuses to establish these checks. So the government has a responsibility to spell out its position, to state clearly and unequivocally that the government will not erect customs checks or posts on the border and that you will take the opportunity to confirm that the government will not reintroduce a physical border on this island. Minister Heather Humphreys, in response, did not specifically answer Deputy Adams' question. Elsewhere, a call was made for retiring Gardaí to be allowed to continue on in the force if they so wish to help tackle rural crime. Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock made the comments on Tuesday night during a private member's motion calling for the creation of a rural crime task force. We should consider extending the voluntary retirement to Gardaí who wish to continue until we reach the recruitment levels that are required, thus keeping the experience that is needed. The setting up of what I consider a low-call number on a regional basis, and also has to be cross-border or around the border, for, mon- for both uh, the community alert systems that people have a recognisable, very recognisable number into a monitored answering system. There should be no bail for repeat offenders and electronic tagging, especially for those involved in gun crime. 
And that contribution by Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock concludes our Loud Me the Oireachtas summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the House of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken. And Ken Murray will have another Loud Me the Oireachtas Report for us in around the same time on next Friday's programme. The reports are brought to you by the House of the Oireachtas. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Alcohol Action Ireland's Silent Voices campaign hopes uh, to give voice uh, to children who are growing up or have grown up under a shadow of alcohol misuse. We'll hear more about this now with Eunan McKinney, who's spokesperson for Alcohol Action. Good morning, Eunan, and thanks for joining us. Uh, you're talking about a, a considerable amount of people, some 200,000 children who are currently in that position, and it's estimated that that 400,000 adults grew up in a, a family that was impacted negatively, obviously, by alcohol. Yeah, thanks very much for having us on, Michael. Um, this is a new initiative by Alcohol Action Ireland. I mean, in the past, you you and I would have spoken at length about the, the public health dimension around alcohol and the, the initiative around trying to get the public health alcohol bill through the, the Oireachtas, and that, that's to primarily deal with reduction in alcohol and try to address the great whole of population issue about public health. And what we're trying to do with this particular new initiative now is to move on into a new space to highlight for people just the harms experienced by others yeah, and um, due to other people's drinking. And typically the, the the hardest example, sadly, in this instance is, is first and foremost, I suppose, children today, as you say, you know, it is an... Mm. It is well recorded that one in six or one in seven children are been are experiencing some degree of fear or anxiety in homes in relation to the alcohol consumed by others in that family situation. Uh, so when you do that kind of number, it's, it's around two hundred thousand kids in the current population. Um, and, 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 and what do you mean by fear and anxiety? Is it that they're afraid for themselves or afraid for the person for who's themselves. been drinking? Yes, they're, they're both of those. I mean, mm. most of these children who are living in these houses and these families essentially have an, a, an elevated sense of responsibility way beyond their years because they're they're fearful for their family. They're fearful for the person who's drinking. They feel it's their responsibility to try and mind them and make sure that they're, you know, not doing damage to themselves. So they, they accept an adult level of responsibility far too young. Um, but also they, they are witnessed to what is undoubtedly behaviour, which it, they, you know, a child doesn't distinguish between, largely doesn't distinguish between people who are largely tipsy or whatever, no. you know, slightly inebriated and drunk. You know, they don't really make any great distinction between the two, and in, and and in that context, they're fearful in that in that type of situation. But then, obviously, when things. Well, sadly, as we know, can sometimes kick off. There can be arguments, there mm. can be rows, there can be disharmony, um, all of those things. The anxiety around simple things like getting ready for school in the morning. You know, will I have a clean uniform? Will I have my lunch packed? You know, will I get a night's sleep? Uh, and all of these things are, are impacting on children in that context. So, yeah. um, and, you know, we've had more extreme cases of this. You know, people like Jeffrey Shanahan, the child rapporteur, would have reported this last year in the context where he had a situation where you know, one in ten of the situations that he was dealing with in relation to where a child had been physically had to be extracted by the Tussle mm-hmm. and the Child Protection Services, where he said, that, you know, the big, big corrosive problem here was alcohol. So it's really worth kind of trying to, what we're trying to do in this context is move move the debate into a, into a more national conversation mm. to say, look, you know, we, we okay, we have, we, we're dealing with the public health dimension in relation to health, uh, uh, in relation to alcohol, 
But we need to start, start talking about what are the long-term harms in relation to that abuse in our families and in our adult lives. And we know that you know, there's a, there is a, a recognised uh, psychologist treatment for alcohol, children of alcoholics, and mm. we know that that is a, uh, a relevant and, and, you know, fairly accurate description for people who are suffering from their own anxiety. Because it, it, stays, it stays with people all of their lives. Uh, they experience it as children, children uh, but it continues to have a, an impact on them as adults. Exactly. I mean, many people would have suffered some degrees of depression or, again, some degrees of anxiety, um, and they, they mm. certainly would carry these through difficulties in, in forming relationships, typically forming, you know, um, real, real trust around relationships. And these are, these are, uh, traits and attributes which, which impact people into their adult lives. And, you know, a lot of people, perhaps end up in some degree of counselling or some degree of psychotherapy. But what we're trying to highlight again is that whilst, you know, despite there being a unique set of circumstances for these adult children, you know, there isn't any significant services available or certainly no real bespoke professional services available for them. And again, what we're hoping to do, and it will take some time, is through a, through a series of initiatives now starting from this launch to try and you know, inform and educate first and foremost the wider population of this this experience, but also to inform the wider uh, health professional community about what is the impact of alcohol on, on these people's lives so that it's much more recognised and, uh, and in time we can move to a much more bespoke service. Sure, uh, abuse takes many forms uh, of course, you yeah. mean, uh, and uh, I mean you're not just talking about violence uh, and uh, no, abu- no, no, no. abuse that has been aggravated uh, against a, a child uh, neglect in itself is a, a form of uh, abuse uh, and uh, yeah, if a child is coming home and doesn't know they're going to get a, their dinner or, or that they can't rely on their parents, undoubtedly that has an impact on them or if they uh, come down to use the toilet in the middle of the night and find their mother on the floor as the case may be or as you said uh, they don't have a a clean uniform to go to school these are are things that can impact uh, and particularly so on a a child who is all the more vulnerable Yeah, exactly and like what we're trying to highlight in that is is that there is social physical, emotional and psychological harm being caused albeit inadvertently perhaps I mean people genuinely probably don't necessarily understand the impact Mm. that they may be having obviously in a situation where you have extremists like you know we know from our data that approximately 6 or 7% of people who drink are addicted you know they are Mm. that heavy level of dependency and we can imagine very clearly what the trauma that might be in those those types of situations but we have to think beyond that as well you know the journey that got to that dependency that's the journey that got Mm. to a higher level of addiction and in that sense you know there's a lot of difficulties being caused to children on a day-to-day level that should be, you know, people should be a good deal more cognizant of what is their behaviour around children with alcohol. Mm. Or, or something as simple as just not listening to children, not paying attention. Correct, yes. And then we spoke, there was some discussion about that yesterday at our launch, where we, you know, there was a the degree of what they talk about attunement in relation to what are the emotional needs of a child. And the more you drink and the steadier you drink through a day, obviously the less attuned you are to those emotional needs for a child. And therefore, in, in a situation where, especially in a situation where there's an older child and there's younger siblings, mm. their, their sense of responsibility, their sense of 
of, of serious endeavour around trying to be an adult is highly accentuated and it's just not appropriate for a child at that level. Mm, or I suppose a, a lot of people would say, look, I, I can be a bit silly when I have a, a drink uh, and uh, it, it's inappropriate perhaps uh, to be silly with a child. Yeah, well, it's, 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 I suppose what I would say in that context is, is that, you know, people need to be more aware of the impact of what, what alcohol is having on themselves at one level, but also they have to be completely aware now in relation to the harms that alcohol is having mm. on other people's lives, and more particularly in the, in the context of children. And if we look at the situation in relation to how historically the pattern of alcohol consumption in Ireland has you know, since the 1960s when we had a very moderate level of alcohol consumption and we did have problems with alcohol back then, mm. there's no, no denying mm-hmm. that. But, you know, historically we've, we've been on an upward curve largely with the, part, with the exception of a, a dip in, the, in, the, in, in recent times for the recession. You know, we've been largely on an upward curve and in that context we know that, you know, when you do the, the, the numbers on it, that it's, it's comfortably a, a level of around 400,000 adults uh, children today okay. who are coping with some of these impacts, you know, or, and, or not. I, and you and I have had this conversation yep. in the past, you know, in relation to there isn't hardly a person you can meet in Ireland mm-hmm. who doesn't have some story close to their own family about the impact of alcohol. All right, uh, well, I have to leave it there because our time has run out. But okay. thank you indeed uh, for well, joining you, us Mike. this morning. Una McKinney, spokesperson for Alcohol Action Ireland, brings our program to its conclusion today. Indeed, uh, for this week. Before we go, let me remind you: a podcast will be available on LMFM.ie this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control chair. I'm Michael and I hope you'll join us for our next programme on Monday morning with Cahill Dervin. That'll be at 9am, God willing, right here on LMFM. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 